texts and emails. You've got oil changes and groceries. You've got kids. And you got swimming lessons and football and friends and eBay. And showers and shopping and snacks. Things can get pretty crazy pretty fast. And to make things worse, your crazy life is being lived alongside other lives that are just as crazy. And before you know it, the whole house is hectic. We need help. So there have been several times this morning when people look at me and say, how did you get so lucky to do self-discipline? Um, there are, how many of you in this, oh, I'm not going to ask you to do that. Um, a lot of you know me personally and know that probably on my list of character qualities, self-discipline isn't number one. Uh, probably self-discipline might not even be like in the top three, but you know, it's there, but I'm not a very disciplined person, per se. Uh, even growing up, I remember there was one time when I was a freshman in high school and I was in cooking class, which, holy cow, uh, that was an overwhelming experience. And uh, I was taking other classes and I was a little bit worried about it. And so I was in this cooking class and one of our projects was that every week we should be putting four or five recipes away towards a recipe book that we developed for ourselves. And so I uh, didn't do that for the first week because I thought, I'll just do it next week. So then the next week came around and I thought, what recipe book? And that proceeded on until like the night before it was due. And I had like this massive meltdown in the middle of my house because I had put off this massive project. And this is the days before Google, okay? This isn't where you could just like type up recipe book copy-paste, which no one should ever do. I couldn't even do that, okay? So, like, I was freaking out. And so I grew up with a lot of sisters, my mom and my dad, and so they were in the house, and they're, like, feeling that anxiety, and they're feeling that pressure. And so the crazy thing is, uh, what ended up happening was I, like, stayed up really, really late, and then somehow I stopped remembering things because I stayed up so late working on this thing, and I woke up the next day, and I had a full recipe book. And a very tired mother and a very tired sister that had stayed up all night putting together my recipe book. Now, luckily, there's like a statute of limitations for this sort of thing, so if my uh, freshman year cooking teacher hears this, I'm sorry that I didn't produce all that material, um, but thank you for the illustration because it's a great example for why my self-discipline affected the people around me because my lack of, uh, my lack of self-discipline had a very adverse effect on the people in my household. Now, one of the tricky things in, uh, about talking about keys to the house is a lot of times people think that we're talking about how to be a family. So we're only talking to parents. We're only talking to married people. We're only talking to people that, that live with at least four or five other people. That's not the case at all. Um, I, I, I can guarantee that everyone in this room, unless you are like the extreme hermit rancher, and even you come to church once a week, you, you see people. 
every once in a while, and you interact with people, and your lack of self-control or your evidence of self-control affects those people. And so before I go any further, I really want to say something. I am not an expert in this at all. This is not uh, from on high the, the, the self-approved expert at self-discipline. I think I've made that clear. And I'm not talking to a whole bunch of people, and I don't want the result to be do better. Because honestly, I've heard so many sermons about do better. You know, this is not about uh, behavioral adjustment. There may be a component to it that you must do better. But really, my encouragement is from one fallen person to a room full of fallen people, we lack self-discipline sometimes. We lack self-discipline sometimes, and it affects the people around us in pretty negative ways. But we all kind of manifest it differently. So one of the ways that I manifest my lack of self-discipline is every time someone asks me to do something, I always say, David, what is it? Yes. Yes, I'll do that thing. Sure, I'll do that. So inevitably, I end up triple booked, quadruple booked on a given weekend. I mean, we probably know what that feels like coming into the graduation season. If you have to do the party circuit where you visit different parties, and it's like, okay, I'm glad to be here, but I got to go. And I got to go. And you just spend your whole day cutting people off, basically, just so you can get to the next thing. That's what happens when you always say yes to everything. I mean, I'm working two jobs right now. I've said yes to both of those things. Uh, you know, volunteer sorts of things. I love doing those. And before you know it, I am doing this thing that's really, really ugly. I over-promise and I under-deliver. Okay, so a really good friend of mine, he has this motto that he lives by that he wants to under-promise and always over-deliver. But when you say yes to everything, inevitably you're going to end up in a place where you are over-promising and under-delivering. And if I have under-delivered to you this morning, my apologies. I'm working on it. And we're all working on it together. But there's another way that self-discipline or the lack thereof manifests in our lives. And that is a very familiar way. I call this like, uh, let's see, it's spelled L-A-Z-Y. Lazy. So if one person commits to everything, another person commits to nothing because it's not fun. It's not something that I would naturally want to do, so I'm not going to do that thing. When I was a kid, notice, when I was a kid, I did this all the time. As an adult, I do this sometimes. I just hide it better. As a kid, my mom would say, Adam, I really need you to take the trash out. Oh, I don't want to. You know, I mean, if, if you're a parent, you've probably seen that little death march. And as parents, you probably did, or as children, you probably did that death march when you were little. It's just kind of a reality of life. That lazy bug, I, I mean, I swear there are probably some people in my life that have no idea what lazy means. <clears throat> but, you know, there are people in our lives that are just really, really lazy. And there are people that, like, are in our skin that are kind of lazy sometimes too, right? that we are kind of lazy sometimes too, where we know the thing that we need to be doing, but it's just not fun. We know the thing that we need to be doing, but there's no short-term gain. And so we're like, I'm not going to do that. Nope. That's, that's a really 
evident area of a lack of self-discipline. But another one that I love to talk about, because it's like a new word, and I always love new words, the word is boondoggle. Now, I have a candy to give away to anyone who can tell me the definition of boondoggle. Beth. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm going to give you the candy anyway, just for... Wow, I can't believe I got it in the right row. So a boondoggle was kind of created, coined during the Great Depression when there was a whole bunch of people sitting around without jobs and there was no money. And so we had a president that came along that said, you know what I'm going to do to stimulate the economy? I'm going to create jobs that don't exist. Not only am I going to create jobs that don't exist, I'm going to create jobs that are completely worthless. And so they would, there were these jobs, basically the, the famous visual of it is that you would hire a group of people to assemble a pile of boulders here. Okay, so that's fine. Sometimes you need to move boulders. That makes sense. But then that same person that hired that crew would hire a different crew to move these boulders over there. And then there would be a third crew to move these boulders over here. And it just kind of went on like that. And so a boondoggle is both a noun and a verb. You can be a part of a boondoggle, or you can boondoggle your time. Meaning, you can invest your time, you can spend your time doing things that are completely worthless. Um, usually they come... I'm, I'm, I'm going to sound a little judgy for a second. Note that this is mine, and I spent my own money to buy this. These things brings so much time-wasting. Whether it's in front of a computer or a television or an iPad or a cell phone, there is so much time wasted looking at pixels. Now, I'm not saying that games are not bad. Or I'm not saying that games are bad. That's okay. Recreation has its place in our lives. But if you spend an inordinate amount of time boondoggling, investing your time in something that's going to bring no return, then you're evidencing a lack of self-discipline. And again, this isn't you, this is us. We're all here together. If you spend your time, you know, scrolling through news sites endlessly, just skimming the, the headlines like I do, Jenny could definitely tell me about that one, or playing video games, or watching television, or, or free cell was a big time suck when I was younger. Um... Yeah, I got some thumbs up there. Can I get an amen? Um, you know, we're, we all do it, okay? And maybe it's not an electronic screen. Maybe for you, it's reading just trash literature. You, you, you know you won't, never want to read it, but you just waste your time. Uh, I want to say romance novels, but I don't want to pick on the people that, that read romance novels because there are other bad books to read or worthless things to read. But if you spend your time doing things that are typically useless and will bring no return to you or to the person sitting next to you or the people around you, then I would say that you're boondoggling your time. And again, this is not about you're terrible and let's all just do better. We have to work on this. Because the truth is, we've been given an amazing gift. God's Word has so many different things to say about our life, our work, how to spend it, what to do with our time. And so I'm just going to, we're going to take a quick journey through a couple biblical paradigms 
And then we're going to arrive at a parable that Jesus teaches to tell us how to interact with those things. So you guys, we're going to do a little bit of theology, and then we're going to look at this story, and it's going to tell us how we can see our lives, okay, and how we can manage it. So the first point that I want to make is that our life is a gift from God. Our life, literally, the breath that you breathe is a gift from God. Can you bring that verse up, Craig? Genesis 2-7, I think. And then the Lord God formed a man from dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. So this is after God had just spoken different things, which also involves breath, but he just says, trees, boom, it happens. Light, boom, it happens. Earth, boom, it happens. Water, boom, it happens. But then he slows down and he does this very intimate thing where he reaches down and he puts his hands in the dirt and he fashions a man out of it and he breathes his life into the first man who literally, by the way, Adam means dirt or of dirt. So there you go. My name is Mud. Um, (laughs) But he breathes, God breathes his very own life into man. And he breathes that life into each of us. When we take that first gasp, sometimes we have to get spanked. You know, have you ever, the the baby not breathing? It's usually a cry, but from our very first breath, we are living on a gift. We are living on a gift. Now, there was a, a teacher a couple years ago who pointed out that the, even the name Yahweh is built of breathing consonants in Hebrew. It's built of breathing consonants. And so perhaps, maybe as God is telling Moses, I am Yahweh, he's conveying the idea that, that your first breath says that I exist and your last breath says that I exist and every breath in between. As we breathe in and as we breathe out, we are living on a gift. We're not living on a wage. None of us deserves that breath. See that one you just took? You didn't deserve it. God gave it to you. It's a gift. And it's a tremendous gift. One that he doesn't just give to everyone. And it's also one where we don't know necessarily when it will wrap up. We know when our first breath was. We don't always know when our last will be. Sometimes it's a natural conclusion to an aging process. Sometimes it's an early evacuation. But either way, we have a first breath and we have a last breath. And every breath in between is a gift. Our very life is a gift. But God, I mean, I don't think I'm going to surprise anybody in this room. God is a very generous God. He doesn't just give us the gift of life. He gives us more gifts. One of those is that he made us in his image. And an aspect of that gift is that work is also a gift. So however you want to write that in your notes, work is also a gift, a gift also, word order does not matter to me. Work is a gift from God because he is a creative being. You know, he's not just a a machine that produces material. He is a person who creates art. He creates us to be creative to work with our hands, to make the world a better place with our, with our abilities. And so it, it says very early in the beginning that, that God made Adam, and then as soon as God made Adam, he put him to work. 
Now, this is before the fall. This is before uh, things started kind of crumbling and falling apart. Adam was working before sin entered the world. Work is a gift from God. Uh, Could you bring up that Ecclesiastes verse for me? That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. So the author of Ecclesiastes, uh, some argue about who wrote it, but whoever it was, he wrote this story about how life exists without God and how life exists with God. And he says, if you are going to live your life without God, just under the heavens, nothing above them, life is meaningless, utterly meaningless. But he also said there's a time for everything. Turn, turn, turn. There is a season. Turn, 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 turn. Uh, And this is kind of in that section of the turning. Because he says there actually is... There are some redeemable parts of life. There are some things in the midst of this puddle of yuck that the author of Ecclesiastes is painting us. He pulls out a couple things here and there. There's about five of them throughout the book. And this is one of them. He pulls it out and he says, but, but, that each of them, that's people, mankind, may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. He gives us work that we can find some satisfaction in it. How many of you know that some people are just born to do things? Like, have you ever met somebody that is so flipping talented at something that they just have to do that thing? I've seen it. And, and there's people in this room that I think were born to do things. That was a gift from God that He gave you. And how many of you know that it's really, really frustrating not to be able to do the thing that you were made to do? You know, ask an engineer to write a paper, and you'll see how frustrating it is to ask someone not to do what they were made to do. I at least got a chuckle from our resident engineer in the back there. That was good. Um, You know, we, we feel fulfilled when we accomplish the thing that we've been created for. And so God created us to work. And we all get to discover what that is, what that section is. There are some of us that heal, some of us that build, some of us that tear down. There are some of us that take garbage away. There are some of us that encourage others. We are a diverse group, but we all do good work, okay? And that work is a gift from our Heavenly Father. So life itself is a gift, okay? Literally, the breath that you have is a gift from God. Work is also a gift, Because we were made in His image and we were made to be creative like Him, work is also a gift. So my next point, um, how many Spider-Man fans do I have here? Anyone? Alice? Ty? Okay, that's good. Sarah, did you raise your hand? Are you a Spider-Man? Oh, that's great. Awesome. Um, Finish the sentence for me. With great power comes... That's right, Zach. You got that. With great power comes great responsibility. Now, originally, this was not in Spider-Man, but it's famous because Uncle Ben said it to Spider-Man before he became Spider-Man. It's like his guiding compass as a superhero. But actually, it's a pretty timeless principle because if you go back and you read uh, a speech by FDR, he, he wrote a speech and he never delivered it because he died too soon. But in it, he said, with great power comes great responsibility. Winston Churchill said, with great power comes great responsibility. Voltaire said, with great power comes great responsibility. Jesus 
said something similar. Let's look at Luke chapter 12, verse 48. I think it's 48. I hope it's 48. It is 48. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishments will be beaten with few blows, lesser blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. He's saying that if you know less, you're going to be punished less because you're ignorant. Okay? I guess Jesus was a little bit nicer about it. But um, with great blessing, when he gives us great gifts, God also asks us to give great gifts. When God gives us great gifts, he often asks us to give great, great gifts. So with great power comes great responsibility. So life itself is one of our gifts. Our life is a gift that we offer. Our work is a gift that we've received that we can turn around and offer. And we know that Jesus said, when you've been given a lot, a lot's going to be asked of you. If you've been given a little, a little bit's going to be asked of you. That includes gifting, that includes knowledge, that includes abilities and talents and skills and time and you. That includes you. All that makes you, you. So, now to my point. You're like, he's been talking forever and he's not even to his point. Here we go. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Because life is a gift, work is a gift. We're supposed to spend our gifts for the people around us. Give away our gifts for the people around us. And so Jesus actually was talking about the end of the world during this section. He's talking about literally the end of the world, everything coming to an end, the day of the Lord. He talks about the sheeps and the goats in this section. He talks about the ten virgins in this section. He also talks about the talents in this section which I'm going to keep using the word talent because it makes the most sense to me and it means a lot of different things nowadays, which I think Jesus would be okay with because I think this is what he meant. Okay? So, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. He's explaining the end of the world. The end of all things. And he says, Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money to another two talents, and to another one talent. Did you notice that not everyone gets the same gift? There are some people in this room that are better at things than others. There are some people in this room that will live longer than others. That's just the nature of things. There are people in this room that have been given more money, that have been given more time, that have been given more talent than other people in this room. We've all been given a different mix. But what I want to say is it doesn't matter whether we're a one-talent or a two-talent or a five-talent person, we all have the same charge. We're all included in the same group. The master comes to us and says, here is your life. Boom. Spend it. I'll be back. Spend it. So, to one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to their ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. He spent it wisely. He invested his money in things that made sense. How many of you know that the stock market doesn't ideally work by just throwing your money at things and hoping something works out? 
It's about research. It's about looking at the things that are probably trending upward, things that are going to eventually bring about more value. You put your money in that thing because that thing is going to earn you more money. So it's like an asset liability situation. You want to invest in assets, not liabilities. You want assets that gain value, not liabilities that will always lose values. By the way, televisions and cars and houses, they're all liabilities. Just, well, houses are arguably one because they appreciate. But that's aside the point, and I'm not Dave Ramsey. So um, he says, to it, he says uh, I invested it, I spent it, and I've doubled it. So you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. Verse 21, he says, the master, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, isn't that kind of like the sentence that we want to hear when we get there? You know, when the role is called and, and, and we stand before our king and our judge and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Enter into my joy. I, I personally yearn to hear that someday because I want to uh, invest the life that he's given me well. He says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. That's a happy ending. The man with the two talents, he was given less. Maybe he's not as skilled. Maybe he's not as rich. Maybe he's not as uh, healthy. He, only, he got less than half the other guy did. You know, he could have looked at his life and said, why me? Why didn't I get all that stuff that that first guy got? He doesn't. He says, Master, you entrusted me with two whole talents. And I have gained two more. Can you imagine the exuberance that he probably has when he's sharing that? He's probably really excited. I mean, 200% is incredible growth. And he says, you gave me two talents, and I got you two more. Here you go. And the master says the same thing. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then verse 24, it's kind of like the bump, bump, bump. Then the man who had received the one talent came. You imagine like smoke, probably, or thunder clash, maybe. No, probably not. It was probably just a normal day. Um, I have an overactive imagination, as you can tell. Um, he says, Master, I know that you are a hard man. Notice what he's saying. He's not saying, Master, I spent this money. He, said, he first starts like digging on his boss, which is, by the way, not a good way to work in the workplace. He says, Master, I know that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His, the difference is how he sees his master. Does he see his master as a good and benevolent master that gives gifts and, and, and gives you the freedom to exercise those gifts? Or is he a hard master who's unfair, who does things that are just wrong, and so he's the kind of guy that you have to fear and you just kind of have to sit on the gifts that you have because you're afraid that something's going to get you. It starts with our view of God. Everything starts with our view of God. But this servant, he didn't invest it anywhere. 
He buried it in the ground. So irregardless of your self-esteem or your self-confidence, the gifts that God has given you, if you don't spend those, you're burying your talent. Stop it. We're burying our talent. Let's stop it. Because, the Master says in verse 26, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So the language here is very doubtful. He's like, oh, so this is what you know about me, is it? Okay. Well then, you should have at least put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have at least received some interest. Take this talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this last section is kind of a a, a theological battleground for some people. Because some people hear this and they say, well, this is certainly hell. This person that didn't invest their life wisely, they didn't invest their time wisely, they didn't do all the right works, they're going to hell. That is a view. I think that a better view, my view, and you can disagree with me about this, is that it's built on the observation that there literally was a place outside of Jerusalem where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. It was called Gehenna. It was where they burned their trash. And anyone who's ever been to, like, a dump or a feedlot or standing outside of a burn barrel where you put the really gnarly stuff in, you know that when you're standing outside of that, it's just like, ugh, this is terrible. I hate this. It's not a pleasant place to be. And he says, you're going to go out and go to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think that there is some punishment for this servant. I think that there is some withholding of reward. But I don't think that the consequence here is eternal damnation because they didn't work hard enough. So again, I want to revisit what I said earlier. This is not about shame. This is not about shame on you. Work harder so you can earn your Father's love or you can earn your salvation. He's giving that to you. But beyond eternal life that He gives as a free gift, He's also given you your life to live. Okay? So I don't want you to think, oh, I'm going to go go to hell. No. Because the thing is, however many talents you have spent you have more talents to spend, probably. To illustrate this, um, I need a young person, someone around 18. No, not Zach. It's okay. I'm not going to ask him to stand on stage. Hope, would you mind? I mean, I know it's not... You look... Yeah, yeah, anyway. So everybody, this is Hope. Everybody give her a round of applause as she joins the stage. Don't you feel like this is like a magic show now? I'm going to like, huh, there's a card here. There's no card there. Um, okay, so I did a little bit of research. Um, I, I, I saw this thing that really inspired me, and so I dug into it a little bit. And I found out that the uh, average human life is about 80 years. And uh, that 80 years can be distilled if 80 years were 30 coins or 30 chips. Now, I know... Um, this is like a, an agent of sin right here. Uh, don't go gambling. I'm not encouraging that. This just makes sense in my head because people typically spend this to wager on things. 
They say, I'm going to invest in this thing. Invest is a very loose term. I'm going to bet that this will work. Um, I think it makes the point. But let's say that your life, the entirety of your life, was uh, 30 days. So 80 years into 30 days. And each of those days, you had to spend one of your chips to get through the day. So I'm going to give you your life. Here you go. So that's wonderful. I just gave life to someone else. Call the newspaper. Um, The problem is, it's kind of tricky, because that's the the entirety of your life, and you were not just born. I mean, you're young, but you're not that young. So the trick is that you've already spent part of your life. So I'm actually going to have to ask for six of those, because you're at least 18. Thank you very much. Ooh, you're like being fair. There's like three red and three blue. That's fantastic. Okay. So um, you have already spent 15 years of your life or 18 years of your life, and now you've got to do some sleeping. You're probably going to sleep about nine chips worth. If you're like the average American, you're going to spend about nine of your chips sleeping. You can count. It's okay. You're a college student. You got this. You don't need to count. That's nine. So beyond sleeping and beyond already existing, you also have to eat food and prepare food. And so on average, you're going to spend two chips worth. So can I have two more chips? Wow, this is a good theme that we have here. So you're going to spend two chips eating. Uh, You're going to spend about three chips working. You plan on working, right? Yeah, she plans on working. So I'm going to need three chips from you, so so that's going to be tough. Thank you. So, um, another tip for traveling and commuting back and forth to work. Um, If you live out in rural Wyoming, it might be a little bit longer. (laughs) Um, You're not quite at the middle of nowhere, but you're almost there. Um, So, I'm going to be very charitable on this one because I've combined two categories. There's household duties like vacuuming and washing dishes and like putting roofs on houses. And there's also television. So I'm going to put those two in the same category, and I'm going to be trustful that, like, out of the four coins that I'm going to ask for, or the four chips that I'm going to ask for you now, we're going to say you spent, like, half a one on TV. Let's say that, because you're good. So, on average, about four chips of our life, if our life were 30 days spent on television and household duties. Now, um, how many do you have left? You have five left. Well, that's good, because I still have a few things to take away. Um, You will spend at least one chip of your life taking care of your own physical needs and the physical needs of others. So, like, bathroom stuff and shower, and you're probably going to be taking care of sick people and that sort of stuff, so I'm going to need one of those. And then you're also going to spend one of your chips doing church, community-related activities, volunteering, that sort of stuff. Knowing you, you probably spend more, but... You're average, so I'm going to take one. So, Hope, can you do me a favor and show everyone how many chips you have left? You have three. This is your discretionary time that you are given from birth. From birth, we have about three chips worth. I think that's tremendous because not everyone in this room, including myself, is as young as Hope. Thank you, everyone. Can you give her a round of applause as she joins? Um, It's very encouraging. Um, There are three chips left. 
And the trick is, not all of us are promised all three. Some of us have probably uh, aged out of this group, and we'd have to start, like, cutting chips in half to spend them. Maybe some of us have made lifestyle choices where we're only going to have two chips left, or maybe one chip left, or maybe half a chip left. But my question is, how are you going to spend, how are you going to invest the time that your Father has given you? Okay? How are you going to invest that free time? How are you going to invest that extra time? Now, you might be able to borrow some stuff, like TV, you could borrow from that. Sleeping, you might be able to borrow from that. Not too much, though, because you're going to get grumpy. But we all have to spend our chips somewhere. And I would encourage us to invest them wisely. Now, I I do want to make a brief caveat. Because inevitably, uh, if I were sitting in the audience, I would be thinking, oh my gosh, I've already spent two. I've only got the one left. You have one left. Forget about these. They're spent. You've got the future. Use the future. Invest yourself in the future and things that are going to bring reward to you and the people around you. That are going to bring reward to the kingdom of God because you still have the chance. Every passing moment is another chance to turn it all around. So let's talk really quick, and I'm almost done, I promise, about those three ways that we are lacking self-discipline and how we can apply this concept of investing our time well. So the, for the first one, the people that say yes to everything, fellow Adams, fellow Davids, people that just can't turn a good opportunity down, I want to encourage you to order your days well. I don't know if you remember, but we did a series way back called Life Well Aimed. And one of the pivotal verses of that was to number our days. We have to be able to say no to some things so we can say yes to the big things. So if you say yes, if you're a chronic, uh-huh, I'll help. Think about it. Stop next time someone asks you to do something and think just 30 seconds if you can actually do that thing and if you actually should do that thing and if someone else could actually do that thing or if that thing is actually worth doing. Just think. That's the first step. So second, for uh, the people that are L-A-Z-Y, I don't want to say it out loud because I don't want you to feel like I'm judging you because I'm there. Uh, Proverbs 25:28. Do I have that up? It lays out a beautiful picture or an ugly picture with an inverted beautiful picture. Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. If you don't have self-control, if you are lazy... If you do not say, I'm going to actually be intentional with my time, you are like a city that has no walls that people can wander in, people can wander out, they can take whatever they want, they can bring in whatever they want. You have no order in your life. Stop it. Okay? And this is from a lazy person to potentially lazy people. That part of us that wants to do only what we want to do. This is the part where we say, try harder. Stop being lazy. We've only got so much time. Okay? That's to me just as, as, as much as it is to you guys. And finally, uh, to boondoggling. If you find yourself boondoggling, and you might even like boondoggle by doing churchy type things. 
You might fritter away all your time doing things that seem godlike. I want to encourage you by an example that Jesus set, up, set for us in John chapter 5. He says, The only things I do are the things that I see my Father doing before me. We need to live our lives watching what God tells us to invest in and then double downing on that thing. Investing into that thing. Nothing else. He's wise. He knows what, how we should spend our lives and so we should constantly be going to Him and asking Him. Because the trick is, we've only got so much time. I cannot stand here and give you time back. I cannot give you experiences back. I can't give you relationships back. No one can. But you still have more. Spend it wisely, please. Let's pray. God, we are grateful for your love, and we are grateful that you've told us that to whom much is given, much is required. And we're just so grateful for the gift of life that you've given us, for the gift of, of work, of being creative that you've given us. So God, I pray that if there are people in this room that hear this message and, and are just in shambles because they've spent their chips, Lord, I pray that you would bring, bring courage to our hearts and remind us that there's more time. It's not guaranteed, but we're still here and we can still do good with the time that we have. So God, I pray that you'd help us not to live back there, but live forward. Lord, help us to invest well. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you and help us to love each other. God, as we lift up your name in worship, as we celebrate who you are, I pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. In Jesus' name, amen.